Welcome to Chapel Under the Oaks. Today is February 7th, 2021, and it's the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. Thank you for joining us. Our key scripture for today is Isaiah 35, 4 and 5, and I'm reading from the Tree of Life version. There we read, Behold your God, he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Our full scripture comes from the Gospel of John, and I'll be reading now from the Message Translation. This is John 9, 1 through 41. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When the night falls, the work day is over. For as long as I am in the world, there is plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the man's eyes and said, go wash at the pool of Siloam. And Siloam means scent. The man went and washed and saw. Soon the town was buzzing. His relatives and those who year after year had seen him as a blind man begging were saying, why, isn't this the man we knew who sat here and begged? Others said, it's him, all right. But others objected, "Mm -mm, it's not the same man at all. It just looks like him. He said, it's me, the very one. They said, well, how did your eyes get opened? A man named Jesus made a paste and rubbed it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. I did what he said. When I washed, I saw. So where is he? The man replied, I don't know. They marched the man to the Pharisees. This day when Jesus made the paste and healed his blindness was the Sabbath. The Pharisees grilled him again on how he had come to see. He said, well, he put a clay paste on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, huh, obviously this man can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others countered, well, how can a bad man do miraculous God revealing things like this? There was a split in their ranks. They came back at the blind man. You're the expert. He opened your eyes. What do you say about him? And the man said, he is a prophet. The Jews didn't believe it, didn't believe the man was blind to begin with. So they called the parents of the man, now bright-eyed with sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? So how is it that he now sees? His parents said, we know he is our son and we know he was born blind, but we don't know how he came to see, having a clue about who opened his eyes. Why don't you ask him? He's a grown man. He can speak for himself. His parents were talking like this because they were intimidated by the Jewish leaders 
who had already decided that anyone who took a stand that this was the Messiah would be kicked out of the meeting place. That's why his parents said, ask him, he's a grown man. They called the man back a second time, the man who had been blind, and told him, give credit to God. We know this man is an imposter. He replied, I know nothing about that one way or the other, but I know one thing for sure. I was blind. I now see. They said, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And the man said, I've told you over and over and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Are you so eager to become his disciples? Well, with that, they jumped all over him. You might be a disciple of that man, but we're disciples of Moses. We know for sure that God spoke to Moses, but we have no idea where this man even comes from. The man replied, you know, this is amazing. You claim to know nothing about him, but the fact is he opened my eyes. It's well known that God isn't at the beck and call of sinners, but listens carefully to anyone who lives in reverence and does his will. That someone opened the eyes of a man born blind has never been heard of, ever. If this man didn't come from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. They said, you're nothing but dirt. How dare you take that tone with us? Then they threw him out in the street. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and went and found him. He asked him, do you believe in the son of man? The man said, point him out to me, sir, so that I can believe in him. And Jesus said, you're looking right at him. Don't you recognize my voice? Master, I believe, the man said and worshiped him. Jesus then said, I came into the world to bring everything into the clear light of day, making all the distinctions clear so that those who have never seen will see and those who have made a great pretense of seeing will be exposed as blind. Some Pharisees overheard him and said, does that mean you're calling us blind? Jesus said, if you were really blind, you would be blameless. But since you claim to see everything so well, you're accountable for every fault and failure. And now the sermon for today. Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, my heavenly Father, make me an instrument of your salvation for these precious people that you have entrusted to my care today by this podcast, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. Amen. It was a dark and stormy night in July of 1505 when a young Martin Luther called out to God to save him from the lightning and the rain. He was on the road returning to Erfurt, Germany, where he was a law student. In the midst of the thunderstorm, he cried out, in German, of course, Help, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And so he did. But why did he call out to St. Anne? 
because St. Anne was the patron saint of miners, and Luther's father owned a copper mine. There would have been a shrine to St. Anne in his boyhood home. Odds are, St. Anne was the only saint Luther knew at this point, and the only person that he knew to call upon who might intervene with him with the Almighty for his moment of need. That all changed over time, of course. Luther left his pursuit of a law degree, much to the disappointment of his father, who could see nothing useful in his son becoming a monk, and Luther became a very devout monk. In fact, he was always so concerned about pleasing God that he confessed to the abbot of the monastery that he felt he could never confess enough. Even as he was training later to be a priest, he felt guilty about performing Mass. He believed he was not worthy. Now, all of this was indicative of his uncertainty about his salvation. Despite all of his best efforts, reading the Bible, becoming a monk, confessing his sins multiple times a day, Luther was not sure he was saved. It was not until years later, around 1514, that Luther found what he needed. By this time, he was on the faculty at the University of Wittenberg and lecturing on different books of the Bible. As he was preparing to teach Paul's letter to the Romans, he read Romans 1.17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith and faith only, from first to last. This was an epiphany for Luther, an aha moment. He finally understood that God's righteousness, his justice, was imparted to humans through faith in God's grace not by our own actions. And so in response to this new understanding, Luther wrote a preface to the book of Romans explaining this. He later wrote about this whole experience saying, I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. Luther's eyes had been opened. Our scriptures today are among my favorites in all of John's gospel. As the story begins, it appears that it might be another story of miraculous healing, another sign for this epiphany season of signs and wonders. And indeed, it is that. Oh, but it is so much more. The scene in Jeru- is in Jerusalem during the Festival of Booths. This, like Passover, is another crowded time of the year in the Holy City. Jesus has been teaching in the temple, creating quite a stir among the authorities. Today, however, he is walking with his disciples through the streets of Jerusalem, and they become upon a blind man begging. Apparently, from the disciples' question, everyone knows this man, and they know that he was born with his blindness. It is a genetic defect. The common belief of the day is that sin causes genetic defects, so the disciples ask Jesus who is responsible, the man Perhaps he was destined to be a thief or a murderer, or his parents. Jesus' response is unexpected. He says to his disciples, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. Look instead for what God can do. It's interesting, isn't it, that now, perhaps more than ever, the world is still looking for someone to blame for everything. But Jesus says, now as then, don't don't think like the world. 
Open your eyes. You are with me, and so think like I think. See the opportunities for God to be glorified. And so, without further comment, he spits in the dust and makes a paste with his saliva. Then he puts it on the blind man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, a large pool that the Jews used for ritual cleansing before they entered the temple. John adds as an aside, which seems at first to be for any readers that don't speak Hebrew, but in truth is much more significant. He says simply, Siloam means sent. Okay, Jesus sent the blind man to wash in the pool. That hardly seems worthy of mention. This, however, does. John is reminding us that the blind man was not the only one who was sent. Jesus himself was sent from God to earth to be the savior of not only Jews, like the blind man, but of the world, of you and me. And for the first time, we must ask ourselves, could we be blind as well? There is more in this story than just the word Siloam that identifies Jesus as God's son, but you have to know the background. Have you ever wondered why Jesus healed the man using his saliva? He didn't do that in other places. Most of the time he healed with just a word. But here in Jerusalem, where there were so many that needed to have their eyes opened, he made a paste of mud to heal using his own saliva. So I'm hoping that most of you have seen CSI or NCIS or FBI or any number of detective shows on TV. If so, you know that one way to get the suspect's DNA for testing is through, exactly, saliva. It turns out that saliva has a long history of being used in this way. There was a belief among some first century rabbis that the saliva of the firstborn son had healing properties. Furthermore, this could be used to prove that someone was indeed the firstborn son. And why was this important? Well, in that culture, the firstborn son was entitled to a double portion of his father's estate. And he must be the firstborn of the father, not just the mother. Obviously, this double blessing was something greatly coveted and something someone might attempt to take away from the rightful heir. And so the ability of the firstborn son's saliva to heal could be used to prove he was the rightful heir. In fact, there is, to this day, an example in the Talmud, the expanded Hebrew scriptures, in which a son was proved to be firstborn because his saliva was used to heal a man's ailing eyes. For obvious reasons, Jesus's parentage was under scrutiny. He claimed to be the son of God, but he came from Nazareth, son of the carpenter Joseph, and Mary had become pregnant in a supernatural way that no one could prove. Who really was Jesus's father? And so Jesus uses this common belief about the healing powers of saliva to prove who his true father is. But he doesn't just help someone see better, like the example in the Talmud. He actually gives sight to a man who had never had it at all, something only God could do. 
Jesus's divine DNA healed the man born blind and proved that he was indeed the son of God and heir to God's kingdom. And thus the controversy ensued. The pool of Siloam was a very busy place. Hundreds of people would have witnessed the man's new sight. They wanted to know how this happened. They demanded to know. They had a right to know. And so the first thing the poor man saw in his life was the stern faces of the Pharisees grilling him about his healing. And then, of course, Jesus made the most of the whole incident by doing the healing on the Sabbath, When no work was to be performed, especially healing, Jesus knew all the right buttons to push on the Pharisees. They began to argue amongst themselves. They became incensed when the blind man proclaimed Jesus was a prophet. And we wonder, had Jesus's divine DNA opened his eyes in more ways than one? The Pharisees called in the man's parents and questioned them. They passed the buck back to their son and then Then the man spoke the words that we know so well. As they pressed him to claim Jesus was a fake healer, he said simply, I know nothing about that one way or the other, but I know one thing for sure. I was blind and now I see. Isn't that true for us? We can't explain how Jesus saved us. We can't explain how our hearts were changed. We can't explain how we are no longer the people we used to be. We just know one thing for sure. We were blind and now we see. The epilogue of the story finds the man encountering Jesus once again. The Pharisees are still watching him, of course, and Jesus takes that moment to identify himself as God's son and to ask this question of the man with new sight. Do you believe in me? In other words, have you been healed of physical blindness and spiritual blindness? The narcissistic Pharisees, always about themselves, cry foul, Jesus has accused them, of all people, of spiritual blindness. And then the message for us comes. The message we began to sense much earlier in the story. Those who think they are not blind are, in truth, the blindest of all. Those who think they have no sin and don't need Jesus are, in truth, committing the greatest sin of all. And so when we read John 9, just to be amazed at the healing powers of Jesus, we are missing the point. This is not just a story about a blind beggar who lived in first century Jerusalem. The man born blind in this story is all of us, you and me. We were all born blind, and it is not until we have the divine DNA of Jesus applied to us that we can see. And seeing is more than just recognizing Jesus as our Savior. New sight means recognizing our own brokenness, our sin, 
our failures, no matter how small or insignificant they may seem to us. New sight means seeing yourself as God sees you. All your secrets, everything you hide so carefully from the rest of the world. We talked earlier about Martin Luther, a Catholic monk whose eyes were opened as he studied and wrote about Paul's letter to the Romans. In his blindness, he could see who Jesus was, but he could not see who Luther was, a sinner who could never do enough to earn his own salvation. Afterwards, although never his intention, he became the catalyst for the beginnings of a new kind of Christianity, what has become known as Protestantism. He also was a catalyst for the subsequent renewal of the Catholic Church. 200 years later, another devout man of the cloth was also experiencing spiritual blindness. He'd grown up in the Church of England, the son of an Anglican priest and a loving mother. Like Luther, he devoted himself to a life of piety and holiness. He struggled constantly to be sure of his salvation. He even became a missionary to the colony of Georgia in the 1730s, where he was a dismal failure. When he returned to England, he attended a meeting of the Moravian Brethren on Aldersgate Street in London. There, he heard Martin Luther's preface to Romans, the very passage which had opened Luther's eyes, and a young John Wesley wrote that he felt his heart strangely warmed, and more important, that Christ alone had secured his salvation. He knew he was saved, completely and fully, but only by the grace of Jesus Christ. Wesley's eyes were opened, and he and his brother Charles, the hymn writer, became the catalyst for the revival of Christianity in 18th century England. And, like Luther, although they never intended to, they began a new way of worship, known to us today as Wesleyan Methodism. I don't know about you, but I find it comforting that these giants of our faith were at one point spiritually blind, perhaps like you, and undoubtedly like me. Like Luther and Wesley, I suspect that among us here, no one is blind to who Jesus is as the Pharisees were, but perhaps some of us are still blind to who we are. We don't see ourselves as God sees us, sinners in need of a savior, unable to save ourselves through acts of service or discipline or ministry. This epiphany season, consider how your eyes need to be opened to who Jesus really is or to who you really are. We don't have the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh, to experience the power of his divine DNA as the man born blind did, but he has not abandoned us. Jesus is called the word for a reason. He is the word, the gospel in bodily form. But we have the word as a book, the Bible, and we have Christ's divine DNA as the Holy Spirit living inside of us. This epiphany season, claim the power of the Holy Spirit to see anew, 
Feel your heart strangely warmed. Be born again. If Luther and Wesley needed help, how much more might we? And like Luther and Wesley, once we can see clearly, what might God have in store for us? This epiphany season, let your eyes be open to who Jesus is and who you are and be ready for what comes next. It is no secret what God can do. Amen. Thank you.